Well, good morning. It is so good to be together in this new year, 2016. Happy New Year to each and every one of you. And I'm excited about what I get to share with you this morning. But before I share that, I want to express my gratitude to you as a congregation. Holly and I are so blessed by this church family. We love living in this city. We love uh, being called to minister to you. I have such an honor to be able to go to Scripture on your behalf each week. And uh, I just, I'm grateful and wanted to express that this morning. I love this church family and I'm excited for the things uh, to come this year. I know uh, New Year's are chances for new beginnings and new opportunities and resolutions and so forth. And we'll talk a bit about that in a little bit. But I want to set up the stage for what we're doing this year. For those of you who may be new to us or uh, may have forgotten, it's okay. I know you forget sermons. Uh, I'm reminded of that on a regular basis. Uh, But what we did a few weeks ago is we began this overarching series called Rooted, where we talked about the importance of planting our roots uh, deep into the ground of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is really a, a going back to the Uh, the basics of our faith, the fundamentals. What is it that's the core of our faith? And it goes back to the gospel, the good news, the action of Jesus Christ. And so each of these symbols that we have back here, we handed out bracelets uh, late last year. And if you haven't gotten one yet, we've got some in a bowl up here, I think in the Welcome Center, perhaps the Faith at Home Center as well. We'd love for you to take one uh, if you haven't gotten one yet. But these symbols remind us of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love this because early in the church, There were people who didn't know how to read or write, but they knew how to remember and tell this story. And symbols were a way that have always been used to remember the story. Uh, Icons and and stained glass windows weren't just ornate ways to build churches. They were ways to tell the story to people who didn't necessarily know how to read or how to write. And so these symbols represent the story of Jesus, the downward arrow being the incarnation, the story of God coming to earth in Jesus, the story of the cross and His death, the resurrection and the empty tomb, Christ's ascension, and then His second coming. And even though we stand between the blue and the green, we stand between Christ's ascension and His coming uh, again, there's more to this story that I'm excited to share with you about that connects with us, especially as we continue with the first symbol, the series called Flesh which is the story of the incarnation, the coming uh, to take on flesh that God did in Jesus Christ. And I want to talk today not just about this in abstract theological terms or not just the Christmas story. I want to connect that story of Jesus coming to earth over the next three weeks with our story, with what we're called to do as the people of God. So right now I want to pray and then we'll get into this message and I'm excited to share with you, I think, what's good news for us, a challenge for us as well today. Let's pray as we open God's Word. God, we we give thanks for this new year that represents the freshness of your mercy and grace that's present every morning. We thank you for that, God. We could not stand on our own if it were not for the forgiveness that you offer. God, I pray that this morning as we come into your story again, as we remember the story of Jesus coming to this earth and how powerful and impactful that point in time was, the incarnation is not finished. You continue to enflesh yourself on the earth through us. So God, would you empower us, would you equip us, would you prepare us for whatever it is that you want to call us to this week? I pray this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, at the beginning of every new year, many Americans and probably those across the world make resolutions. I don't know, I'm curious in a crowd this size, how many of you made at least one resolution this year for 2016? I want to see hands out there. 
There's got to be more than that. Come on. Well, it's interesting. Okay, the stats may not work out exactly, but in America, usually 40 to 45% of Americans uh, make resolutions for the year ahead. Now, do you know how many of those actually follow through on those resolutions? Of the 40 to 45%, uh, statistics tell us about 8% actually fulfill those commitments that are made at the beginning of the year. Now, there's lots of reasons for that, but one of the reasons I want to talk about today is something I, I call the New Year's resolution trend. Now, if you've ever made a New Year's resolution, or if you haven't and you make fun of those who do, you've experienced this trend that I'm talking about. That trend is this, that there are ideas that we have, images in our head of things we want to accomplish or do at times in our lives. Some of us do this in the form of resolutions. Others of us do this in the form of seeking out for a job we want to create or, or hoping to be married or have kids one day or all kinds of human emotions and dreams that we have, images that we want the future to behold. We have these dreams in our head of how that will happen. And usually we try to push toward those things by having finish line moments in our head of the goal we hope to accomplish. If you've ever uh, been a runner, or maybe you have a goal this year of running a 5K race or a 10K, or maybe a half marathon or a marathon, you usually will have, if you have this in mind, some kind of idea of how that's going to feel at the end of the race that pushes you forward through the year as you do your training. Maybe you have that picture of you know, the, the medal around your neck as you cross the finish line, or you know, uh, collapsing across the line and having your family and friends lift you up. I don't know what that image is. But we all need images like this to keep us going in the midst of the rest of our lives. The problem lies in this. So many of us have that finish line moment in mind. What we don't have in mind are all the days leading up to that finish line moment it takes to accomplish the image in mind. So maybe you thought of running a race and you're excited about getting the medal around your neck, but you got to count the cost because it's going to take a lot of 5 a.m. wake-up calls. And it's going to take a a lot of uh, running when you'd rather do other things. It's going to take the day in and day out grind of training because you don't try to run a marathon, you've got to train to run a marathon. Uh, You also have to be ready for that moment in the race that most runners will talk about when you hit the wall, right? About mile 20, 22, there's usually a wall that that people hit. And how are you going to cross the line if that happens at mile 20 and you've got 6.2 miles still to go to get that medal around your neck? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't been into running and you're getting into it this year, you'll have to deal with some, how do I put this, physical irregularities that only runners know about that I can't explain this morning. But if you go through the process, you'll find out about those. You see, there's difficulty involved in trying to accomplish any big goal in our lives. It's not just races like this. Some of us want to accomplish losing weight this year, and we have a plan for how we're going to go about that. But you've got to count the cost of the 5 a.m. workouts and and saying no to all the desserts that you want to say yes to. I mean, there's no magic bullet to losing weight. It's consuming fewer calories and expending more calories, right? More energy out. It's as simple as that, but it's as difficult as that. And all throughout our lives, we have these images in mind of what we want to create, but sometimes we forget that the image in our minds of how it will go looks a whole lot better than how it works out in the concrete in reality, right? It's kind of like communism, right? I mean, great idea on paper, but hadn't really worked out, right? I mean, just look back over history from Zedong to Stalin to Lenin to Hitler and so forth. There's just no real example of this working out in concrete reality. But this isn't just true when it comes to diets or marathons or or communism. It's true when it comes to people in our lives, right? When I was 12 years old, I still remember it 
I was on my parents' bed watching on Sunday afternoon the golf tournament that was on television. It was the U.S. amateur that year, and there was this young golfer I'd never heard of. He'd already won five major events, but this was his sixth. His name was Tiger Woods, and I was a big golfer at the time, and I was really excited about this guy, and I became a huge fan, and out of his 79 PGA Tour victories, I bet I've seen at least 65 of them on live TV. I followed his career all the way through. I watched all the major victories, but what's interesting is my, my son Maddox is six years old. He's never lived in a world where Tiger's won a major golf tournament, and the likelihood is he probably will never live in a world like that. Now, I grew up following his career, liking him so much, but what we didn't know is behind the scenes of the image and everything that looked good on the outside, there was a life that was beginning to to turn underneath that. And it's amazing how sometimes we can look at people, put so much hope in them. You've had this happen in your own life with people close to you sometimes. Sometimes the image that's put out there is so much better than the reality behind the scenes. How many of you have had that experience of meeting that celebrity that you long to meet one day and you meet them And you're so disappointed by it because you have this picture in your head of how they would be and they just never really can live up to the image. Marriage can be like this. Because in our culture, in our dating relationships, what we do is we put our best step forward. We put the best image out there. This is general image of how things will be once we get married. And how many of you have been married? I mean, you can tell a different story, right? Don't raise your hand with me, okay? But sometimes it's harder in reality to live out what we dream it will be like. And successful marriages are not marriages where we continue to live up to the ideal or live up to perfection. Successful marriages happen because people live like they really are and they begin to accept one another and they push one another to become the best versions of themselves that they can be through the power of the Holy Spirit's life, refining one another and sticking with one another through it. So we have these images in our minds about how things will be, about crossing the marathon. What we don't imagine is the hard things it takes to get there. And that's why so many of our 40 to 45% of Americans that make these resolutions can't come through on it. Now, there's different ways to talk about this. I talked about this as a New Year's resolution trend, but another phrase for this is one that came, was come up with by a guy named Walter Brueggemann, who's a, an Old Testament scholar. And he talked about this as the, the scandal of the particular. Same idea is what I've been describing. The scandal of the particular is you can have this grand idea about something that's big, but when it comes into concrete reality, there's a scandal to the particular nature of something that never seems to turn out as good as the dream you'd had. How many of you, you know, have had a business plan, right? And you knew it was going to work this way, and then you get into it and you realize it's a lot harder to figure that out. That's the scandal of the particular. And in the Old Testament, what we see is the writers of Scripture are inspired by God to write a story about God. In the Old Testament, God never shakes hands with anybody in real life. He speaks through mediators. He speaks through messengers. So the conception of God that we have prior to Jesus is really a conception like Zeus in a way. Nobody's ever met him. No one's ever heard a sermon spoken by him. No one's ever met him in flesh and blood. But when Jesus comes to earth, it's a game changer. Because no longer is it this conception that has to come down to reality. Now with Jesus, the reality is there. It's in flesh and blood. You can go to synagogue with his family. You can change his diapers if you're in the you know, synagogue in that time. Like You know this guy, and this guy's claiming to be Jesus. Before Jesus was born, God's a, a generic being. But after Jesus comes, there's a specificity to him. There's 
a scandal of the particular that comes in. And this is the claim that we as Christians believe is that Jesus who comes to earth, He's fully God and He's fully man, and that's been hard to figure out over the centuries. How does that work? What does that look like? But this is the scandal of our faith. This is the belief that we hold on to is that Jesus came to earth and He was fully God and He was fully man. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to encourage you to open to the Gospel of John. John, uh, in the 14th chapter, we'll have the words on the screen as well, but if you have your Bibles open there, because now in the incarnation, this flesh piece, this downward arrow we're talking about, God's taking a risk that He's never taken before. Because like I've talked about before, it's one thing to have an image of the metal around your neck. It's one thing to have an image of the pants you'll fit into or the dress you'll fit into. It's another thing for things to come to reality in flesh and blood. This is what it says. This is the words of Jesus. John 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, many of you probably heard this passage before. There's, a, there's an exclusive nature of this passage, isn't there? Jesus is saying, if you want to get to the Father, I'm the one way. But there's also a very inclusive message. It's to say, I'm the way, but anyone who comes through me can find the Father. So it's this interesting kind of mixture in this passage of Jesus saying, you want to know how to get to the Father? It's me. It's me alone. This is the way you're going to go. But anyone who wants to enter through me, who wants to find that way to the Father, come to me. That's the scandal that I'm talking about in the incarnation. But watch what follows. He even makes more bold claims as it follows. Verse 7, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Apparently, Philip didn't get it. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. What is Jesus saying? Saying, if you've seen me, if you've shaken my hand, if you've heard one of my sermons, what you've heard is God in flesh. If you've ever wondered what God looks like, if you've ever wondered what God would do on the earth, you're looking at Him. This is God. This is what it means for God to live on the earth. Just watch my life. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who's seen the Father has seen me. The writer of Hebrews talks about this same idea in Hebrews Chapter 1, if you'd turn over there with me, Hebrews chapter 1. I've read this chapter, this verse before. I think it's one of the most important verses in all of Scripture for us to get. The writer of Hebrews begins his letter like this. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now, what's verse 1 saying? Right? There was a general idea of who God was. God mediated through these messengers, these prophets, who he was. But then comes the particular. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom all, uh, also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You see, this is the scandal of the particular. This is what the incarnation is really all about, is that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God in the flesh, if you want to know what the Father looks like, Jesus gives you every indication of what the Father is like. In Jesus, we see God in the flesh. 
And I've said this to you before, but I want to say it again, and I'll probably say it again at some point. The scandal of your faith, the scandal of being a Christian, the scandal of Christianity is not that Jesus is like God. It's that God is like Jesus. Let me explain what I'm saying. It's like that medal around the neck. It's like the pants you hope to fit into after the year. It's that image you have of everything in generic terms, right? We see who God is in that sense throughout the Old Testament, but when Jesus comes to earth, what we're claiming is that this human who walked the earth, this human who got to know people, we have people who wrote Scripture who knew Jesus, God himself in the flesh, that that person is actually displaying to us who God is. Let me carry this out a little differently and illustrate this. Uh, John Mabry was up here a little bit earlier, and and John's a, a man of God, I would say. In fact, I call him a godly man. What do I mean when I say that? What I'm saying is John has characteristics of God. John's been formed in a certain way. And I could say this about a lot of us who are in the room this morning. Many of us as saints, as holy ones, are, are more and more reflecting the image of Jesus in our lives. That's what we want to see as the Spirit works more in our lives. So it's one thing to claim that uh, John is godly. But it's a whole other thing to say that God is Johnly, right? You get what I'm saying? Like there, there's, a, there's an original, there's a source, there's the, there's the thing itself, and then there are copies. And the way you determine copies is you compare them to the original. And we can't possibly say that God is Johnly, even though it's not that much of a difference from saying John is godly. You following me? But that, in Jesus Christ, what we're saying is exactly that. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. And this helps me a lot because i got to tell you, there have been moments in my life I still struggle as someone who doubts at times, that struggles to put all together the picture of Scripture and how all this fits together. Maybe some of you this morning are having trouble believing and piecing together this whole Jesus and God thing. I mean, the Trinity's been discussed for years. I've come to stake my life on it, but i got to tell you, I I struggle. And, And the struggle I have at times is on the picture of God that I see in the Old Testament. Because I look at some of those stories and I think, man, I... I don't know what to do with all these genocidal passages. I don't know what to do. And I, we could go through a whole class where I could describe how I've come out on that. But i got to tell you, this comforts me. The fact that Jesus is the exact representation of God. The fact that the image of the invisible God is Jesus. I don't know what to do with all those generic passages. But I sure like what I see in Jesus Christ. Can anyone say amen to that? And if that's true of Jesus... I don't have to figure out all that other stuff. All I need to know is the clearest manifestation we've ever seen on earth of who God is, is in Jesus Christ. And and, and this is a huge move because, uh, like I described before, the scandal of the particular is usually like this. You have this generic idea, and then when it becomes flesh and blood, it becomes much worse than what your imagination was, right? But what we see in Jesus is the opposite. The Old Testament picture gives us a picture, but when Jesus shows up, the particular, it's even better than what we'd imagined. And that's what I love about the story of Jesus, what the flesh and incarnation means for us is, I can, I can stake my life on Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. This is the claim that Jesus makes in John 14 that no other religion can make a claim for because no other God made this decision to come to earth in any other religion. See, as humans, we needed the incarnation. We needed a God we could reach out and touch. And Christianity is the one religion that makes this move. But if Jesus shows us perfectly who God is, I'm all in. Amen? 
Now, if this was just a good theology lesson, I could end it right here, but I want to try to tie this to our lives, what this means for you tomorrow morning, because this series isn't just about Jesus. It's certainly about that, but it's also about us, because here's the thing about the the early uh, parts of the New Testament. You have four Gospels that tell the good news of Jesus Christ, but then you have a, a story in the book of Acts, and Luke, who's this writer who writes the Gospel of Luke, also writes the book of Acts. And what Luke's doing is saying, hey, you see what Jesus does in the world? He's healing people. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Well, he writes the follow-up in Acts to say, well, you think that's just Jesus? No, the church actually lives out the very same things. When the church is at her best, she's beautiful. She lives out and looks just like Jesus. Now, that's the struggle throughout the rest of the book as Corinthians and other letters come along. We don't get it right all the time. Here's what I want to proclaim to you this morning. See, the incarnation didn't end with Jesus because we are the second incarnation of God. Think about this for a moment. The first incarnation was God coming into the world through Jesus, right? That's one thing to claim. But the scandal of Christianity is to say God has poured out His Holy Spirit on believers, on His church. And when we interact in the world, what we're doing is living out as people who are filled with the Holy Spirit to show people what it looks like to be Jesus in practice today. We're the second incarnation of Jesus. Now that is a risk for God to take. Because it's one thing to send your own son, but to make people make decisions about God based on how we live in the world... That's a whole other thing. And that frightens me at times. How am I supposed to live out? How am I ref- supposed to reflect the glory of God to anyone else? I'm a broken man. I'm a broken person. All of us can deal with that struggle, can't we? But this is the struggle of the incarnation. What does it look like for us to put flesh on the good news of Jesus Christ? You see, when the Holy Spirit indwelled the followers of Jesus, God's saying, now it's your turn to show the good news of Jesus Christ. It's your turn to show the good news that God brings into the world. That is a whole other level of vulnerability. It's much riskier that God does. Now, you've heard this before probably, right? You may be the only Bible that some people read. And my question is this. If, if, if somehow through some kind of catastrophe in the world, all of Scripture got wiped out, we didn't have any record of it, what would we show as the people of God? What would be the story that we would hang on to and tell? What would be the deposit of faith that we would pass on. This was the early church's struggle. They didn't have a Bible to show to people. They had to remember these stories and tell them and live this out in flesh and blood, and it worked. God, the Holy Spirit, worked through that possibility. Because whether we like it or not, we do reflect who God is to the world. Parents know this, right? You can do the best job of parenting you want to do, but like it or not, People are going to judge you based on how your kids interact in the world. It doesn't mean it's fair. You may have done a much better job than your kids are living out, but your kids reflect the parents, don't they? And the truth is true for God as well. Every time people, as we as His children, go out in the world, we live in certain ways. We reflect who God is. People make decisions about God based on who we are and how we live out the good news. And that's daunting. I mean, to think that whatever, however I live is going to reflect back to people what they think about God, that's, that's a scary thing to live out. But the truth, the, the hope is not that we perfect ourselves, it's just the Holy Spirit is reflected through us to show people the truth of who God is. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. I don't know why God did this. 
It seems like it'd be a whole lot better to leave Jesus around a lot longer, but what Jesus says is actually it's going to be a greater gift for the Holy Spirit to come out on you. So here's my question. When people look at your life and they judge God based on your reflection, do they see God as a loving God? Do they see God as a judgmental God? Do they see God as a grace-filled God? Do they see God as a, a stingy person, maybe a generous God? People are making those decisions based on our behavior and how we live as the people of God. Paul says one of the most remarkable things uh, tied into this whole idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's just verse 1 that he says, and I I still have a hard time wrapping my mind around this. He says a similar thing in chapter 4. He says it twice in 1 Corinthians. But I want to read 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. This is what it says. Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of of Christ. Some of your translations say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And for me, that verse is a gut check. Can you imagine getting to the point in your life that you could proclaim with Paul the same thing? And I think this is what it means to be a people who are sanctified, a people who live into discipleship, is that more and more in our lives, it doesn't mean we're perfect. What it says is, more and more we're able to proclaim to people As you're trying to figure out this way of Jesus, follow along the path I'm taking because I'm following him first. Because the best leaders of people toward Jesus are people who are leading behind, following behind Jesus. I'm wondering what it would look like to get to a place in our lives where we'd be able to proclaim to our kids, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But what would it look like to get to the place where to our own spouse we could say to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. What would it look like for new believers, people who are new to the faith that don't know how to live this out, to be able to get to a point, not that we're perfect, but to say, as I'm struggling along, as the Holy Spirit's at work in my life, imitate me, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I think this is the calling of what it means to be sanctified. We don't obey God in order to receive His grace and mercy. We receive His grace and mercy. And then in response to that, out of our love and appreciation, we respond with obedience. But we don't do that in order to get his love. What we do is we do that to reflect the love of God to the people we're encountering so that we might be able to proclaim the same thing. Follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I pray in my own life more and more. This is a phrase that I can begin to even think of uttering. Because we behave so that others can see the image of God in us. At the beginning of the series, we passed out these bracelets and we wrote down names on canvases. Do you remember this, those of you who were here? And we've been praying over those names, people that we want to share the good news of Jesus Christ with. If you've been invited by someone here, it may be that your name's on a canvas. I want you to know we're praying for people across our city that they would come to know the good news of Jesus Christ and turn their lives over to His care, that they would find salvation in His name, that they would be baptized, and they would make disciples of others as they're being discipled. And if you haven't done that yet, we'd encourage you to grab a bracelet, write more names on the canvas that's up here. We want to pray over these names throughout this year ahead. But we can't just proclaim that message. We've got to enflesh that message. We've got to live in a certain way so that our words have credibility. And I don't know who in your life that person may be, but I want to ask you again as we come to the first of the year, who is that person in your life? What's the name of the person that God has put you in their life so that you might share the good news with. I want us to be a church more and more who asks ourselves this question over and over again. Not believing that transformation happens because of us, but that God would work through us and bring the growth that only He can bring.
And so I want you to watch this video as you think about this, because I think this may compel you to think in a whole new way about the possibilities of discipleship. Stop me if you've heard this one. You grow up, you graduate high school, you attend the best college you can get into, and a few years later you graduate again. You marry the perfect girl and move into a small character-building apartment. Over the next couple of years, you had a house, a dog, and two-ish children. A perfect start to a picket fence life. Time begins to roll by, your kids grow up, you get involved at your church just like you're supposed to do. And sure, you have opportunities to engage more with the outside world, but it's hard enough to balance your job, church, wife, and two-ish kids. Your life continues speeding along, your children grow up and make you a grandfather. Eventually, you retire and start spending a little too much time in Florida, but it's okay to relax. After two generations, you've impacted the eight lives in your family. Finally, at the end of it all, the Lord calls you home. And it was a good life, right? Work, family, church, because whichever order you put them in, that's all there is, right? What would happen if we shook up that formula? Imagine if we went out of our way to engage with our world, coworkers, neighbors, old friends, and not just engage, disciple. Imagine if we took one year and discipled one person from our world, took a year and truly shared the message of love, salvation, and freedom in Christ to that one person. And what if inside that year that person started to follow Jesus? But let's not stop there. What if the next year that person began to disciple someone else, and you did the same thing, and two more people came to know Christ? And what if you did this year after year, person after person, and each of them picked one person year after year, and each of them, and each of them? If this kept going for 30 years, that would mean that 1,073,741,824 people could hear the gospel. That's a little more than eight. The thing is, it's not a joke, and it's not a gimmick. Most importantly, it's not impossible. It's one person boldly making a commitment to bringing one other person to Christ. And it all starts by asking the question, who's your one? that open up your imagination about what could be in your family? It's not just about your kids or about your grandkids, that discipling people who disciple people. This is where churches make a mistake is sometimes the end of our commission is just to disciple people. No, we're called to disciple people who disciple people. This goes to the next generation and that, that vision goes to the next generation. What if your legacy began this year with just saying, who's my one this year, God? Put that person in front of me. Whatever you want to do in the days to come, we want to be a church that sees the snowball effect of people coming to know Jesus, the good news that changes lives. It's possible. What's your legacy going to be? But to begin to disciple people is going to take forming a life, and we have all kinds of ways to help you do that this year through point groups, our Bible classes, all kinds of ministries throughout this church that would love to connect with you to step beside you in this role of aiding people and bringing them along as well. But this new year, as you make your resolutions, as you think this afternoon, maybe again, about what you need to commit to, maybe you're not one of those people, but you can commit to this. Who's your one going to be this year? Who's God placing on your heart to share the good news with? And number two, what's the one area of your life that you'd like to see growth in, you'd like to see movement in, so that at the end of this year, more easily you can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 
as imperfect as I am, I'm growing and God's moving in me and, and, and our inefficiencies are found with the sufficiency of Christ and the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But I want to ask you to think about this, to, to make plans this year. What's it going to be? Who's your one? And what's the one area you're able to say that phrase that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 11? Something to think about as we close today. Let's, let's pray together as we close our time in the Word. God, I thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. I thank you that you didn't stay up in heaven far away from us like the stories of the other gods. But you're a God who came down in, in the person of Jesus. You, you died. You showed us how to live. You were buried and you were raised from the dead on the third day. And God, we want to live as that second incarnation. We want to live with your spirit moving through us. We want to live more and more so that we can somehow utter the phrase that seems almost impossible this morning. Follow me as I follow Christ. God, may we be a church that makes disciples who makes disciples. May we be a church that, that sees growth not from other churches, but from true kingdom growth and people coming to know you who don't currently know you. We pray for the names on these canvases, God. We pray that you will move and you will work and that you will give us opportunities to speak and to act and to live as the flesh and blood of Jesus in each of their lives. May you move, God, in our lives, and may you form us and mature us beginning today. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.